Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Whether you feel safe dining indoors, on a restaurant patio, or want takeout, author Amanda Plum has you covered between the covers of her book. Later this hour, she'll guide us through unique eats and eateries of Atlanta. Jeremy Ray is the next artist we'll hear discussing his work in our series Speaking of the Arts. And first, works from 20 Latin American artists from across the East Coast are on display at the Marietta Cobb Museum of Art through March 20th. Something to declare explores the artist's desire to say we are here and showcase what drives them to create art. The curator of the exhibition, Atlanta artist Carlos Solis, joins me now via Zoom, along with the museum's curator, Madeline Beck. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for inviting us. It's a pleasure to be here. Carlos, in 2008, you founded the Contemporary Latin American Artist Collective Contrapunto, Counterpoint. Why did you want to create this group? Well, I, I used to live in Chicago. I, I moved here. When I, I started visiting galleries and museums, I noticed of a lack of Latin American art. I don't know. I just felt... A, the urge, it's like a call telling me, hey, you know, you, you know, we need to do something about it. So I start uh, talking to artists here in Atlanta about the, my project, my idea for this. You know, I start uh, working, connecting with people. Uh, and now we have a nice group of six artists from different parts of Latin America, Nicaragua, Peru, Mexico, Colombia myself from Venezuela, mm -hmm. uh, try to, you know, uh, do something different to make the difference here in Atlanta to show that we are here, basically. The Atlanta need to pay a little bit more attention to what's happening with the Latin American art community. Indeed, not only because of the importance of contemporary Latin American art, but also because we have a sizable Latin American population in the Atlanta area. Yes, indeed. It's changing. It's getting bigger. And that's the reason, the main reason that motivate me to, to do what I'm doing right now, to create exhibits like this. So hopefully we, we are going to get better and we are going to, you know, have an establishment art community or established art community in Georgia. What sort of opportunities does Contrapunto provide to the artists in the group? Well, there are many, you know, but it's more like exposure. My main goal is to eradicate the stereotypes that we have. Of course, you want to exhibit your work, sell it, but there are many things, many things that I want to do with this. And the main thing for me and based on my experience, 
is to change minds and to create awareness of what's happening here. I mean, moving to the States 30 years ago, I faced that, you know, not so good experience with being a Latino here in, in the States. Basically, it's the same stereotypes. You know, we have one nationality. Mm. The, the portrait of being an artist or a Latino in the, in the States basically come from the media. And when you watch TV, especially back in the 90s, it wasn't too positive, let's put it that way. So based on that, um, and based on in my experience here moving to Georgia, talking to people, especially people within the business, within the art world, you realize how bad it is. That motivates me even more, you know, to have this group to promote Latin American art, because I believe art is a good way to create, you know, bridges and connect with people in a positive way. And I can give you a good example that had me a few years ago. I met this person. He was a very conservative man. And he have a, you know, a, a really bad idea of Latinos. I wanted to show them or him especially what we do. Once he got to know the artists, what he got to know what we do, he told me, listen, Carlos, ever since I met you guys, my idea of uh, stereotypes that I, I carry for a long time, it just dissipated, disappeared. Oh, so it, it's a good thing to, to know that you're making a difference. Yeah. It's very rewarding. And that's my main goal, basically. Was your experience with this man changing his mind through your artwork? Yes. Oh, wow. The, the beauty about all this is, as humans, we are very visual. We are based on stereotypes and idea on what we watch on TV. But once you get to know the artist, the person where you come from, your culture, everything changes. You know, if you are going to base your ideas of what is a Latino, which is a very complex by itself, once you get to know the person, then everything changes. You know, you don't base those concepts on what you watch on TV because it's, it's very superficial and it's usually negative. You know, so it's a, an experience that everybody should come to see us, should interact with us, and see that we are we are not what we have been portrayed on, on TV or, or the media outlets. We are more than that. You know, and they are is the good way to go. From the 20 artists whose works are in the show, are some of them from Contrapunto, from your collective? Yes. For, of the 20 artists, six of them, including me, are from Contrapunto. Uh, Madeline, I was hoping we could talk about some of the themes the artists depict in their works and how you and Carlos worked together to curate this show. Absolutely. Well, first off, thank you so much, Lois, for having us. It is so nice to be here with you. So to give a little bit of background about how Carlos and I came to where we are now with this exhibition, Carlos and I worked together, speaking of Contrapunto, we worked together in 2018, having an exhibition of Contrapunto at the Marietta Cobb Museum of Art. The group is pretty much the same as it was in 2018, except for I think one member has departed and then another member has been added. So it's been really, really great to resume that wonderful relationship that I developed with the Contrapunto artists. But then when Carlos came to me with the idea of the Something to Declare exhibition, I just fell in love first with the concept that he developed. I loved his narrative. The proposal he sent was so articulate and it really hit me hard. And then the artists themselves were just incredible. So yeah, I really fell in love with, you know, the selection of artists as well as Carlos's vision and his 
curatorial narrative for this project. So honestly, it was just a matter of submitting it to my board and presenting it to my directors. They were right on board with how much we were passionate and excited about this project. And Carlos pretty much handed me a, a list of artists that he thought were some of the most strong contenders to be a part of this exhibition. We reached out to as many of the artists that he proposed as possible and the ones that committed, committed. And some of them we lost along the way, but we ultimately ended up with this selection of a nice round 20 incredible artists. You know, most of them are from Georgia, but then we have a handful that are from North Carolina, New York, Florida, Pennsylvania. So it's a really dynamic show bringing in artists from across the East Coast. And what I found, you know, speaking of themes, Lois, I thought was really interesting that developed bringing all of these artists together from not only different home countries and, and, and nationalities, but also from across the Eastern United States was this theme that I kept noticing of a assertion of identity, a questioning of identity, these artists trying to explore what it means to either be a mother or an immigrant or just an artist or just explore what it means to be themselves through the lens of their very important nationality and their history, but then as well through their presence in America today as a contemporary artist. You know, some of these topics are, are very deeply personal. Some of them are a bit more political. There's art that discusses motherhood, but then there's art that discusses euros and currency and a little bit more of the, the practical application of what it means to be a Latin American and a Latin American artist. So it has been honestly a learning experience for me. And I thank Carlos for bringing this to the attention of the MCMA. And I'm just so proud of every single artist in this show and especially of Carlos for not only being an exhibiting artist, but also co-curating and co-managing this with me. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights is speaking with Madeline Beck, curator of the Marietta Cop Museum, and Carlos Solis, the artist and co-curator of the exhibition, Something to Declare. We've had both Alexi Torres and Jessica Caldas on our show before. It was exciting to see their works around view in the exhibition. How would you describe Jessica Caldas's piece, The Dilemma, Rachel, and the symbolism of it? So Jessica Caldas's piece, The Dilemma, and then in parentheses, Rachel, has absolutely been the top conversation piece in the exhibition. So when you enter the main galleries, you're immediately confronted with this pink plush figure that hangs from the ceiling from what looks like rope harnesses and bricks hang from her stomach above a mirror. And it actually brings to mind a, a group of small children I was taking through the galleries this week. And it's a very conceptual piece. And I have to be frank that I can't quite tell you exactly what the symbolism is and exactly what Jessica is intending it to mean. You know, I know this is a part of her tired body series. So it immediately brings to mind concepts of exhaustion, the body being physically exhausted as well as emotional and mental exhaustion. But when I asked these children what they saw, they immediately said, it makes me think of being weighed down. It makes me think of being tired. But then they also said, it makes me think of uh, Valentine's Day. It's pink and it's red and it's pretty. And it makes me think of girls, which I think then beautifully ties into Jessica's, you know, pretty uh, frequent theme in her work of womanhood, especially with um, being a mother of a young child. So I don't want to speak too much on exactly what she means, but that piece has absolutely been the, the top conversation piece because it's so outstanding and so interesting. Hmm. Paula Reynaldi creates her sculptures from acid-free masking tape. What can you tell us about the appearance of these 
intricate pieces. Yes. Yeah, so Paula Rinaldi, is, she calls them nests and vases and mirrors. Those are the, the series that we have in the exhibition right now. These are absolutely stunning. These hand-formed sculptures made out of masking tape. And she cuts each piece individually, forms it in her hands, and adheres it to her surface. I've watched her do it as she was prepping and preparing pieces for the exhibition, and it is absolutely painstaking. Um, it's really interesting, again, to see people's response to these pieces. Some people absolutely love them because of the, the repetition, the pattern, the texture of them. And then you add the fact that it is such a tenacious substance that they're made out of, but then they maintain this delicacy. But then there's some people that really don't like them, the texture of them. I think that honeycomb texture, I'm, I may not pull the word properly, but I think it's like tryptophobia or something like that. There's a, a phobia of repetitive holes, repetitive like honeycomb textures, that type of organic patterning. People's have a visceral, like subconscious strong reaction against it. So there's actually been some people that are absolutely enamored by these and their, their technical mastery, but then some people that see them and can't even read the wall label because it is just upsetting and it, it just viscerally disturbs them, which I find incredibly fascinating as well. That is the word that came to my mind immediately. Yes. Carlos, many of your paintings are in the surrealistic style. Was Salvador Dali an inspiration? Were there many? Of course, Salvador Dali. Dali is Dali, basically. <laughs> so, uh, but there are many. The Tangi, Chirico. Uh, I'm a follower of the, the Dada group. So I consider myself a very traditional surrealist artist. But many of my inspirations, ideas, come from dreams and visions. Truly, the essence of surrealism. Most of your pieces that I have seen have a spiritual undertone or some religious symbolism as well. Why is that important to your work? Because it's part of me. That's who I am. I was raised Catholic in Venezuela, uh, even though I didn't practice. <laughs> but then I became a you know, a full-time Christian, let's put it that way. Of course, it's, it's just part of my culture. And you will see those elements in, in many of my paintings. But also there are, uh, you know, some political elements, something about the environment. You, I cover many topics in, in my paintings. It's not exclusively religion. They are uh, coming from Venezuela. And you know what's happening right now in Venezuela. I cover those topics too. It's an issue. It's a very serious problem that we, we have. And in my paintings, you can reflect that. And where I come from, my, my personal and political beliefs, the environment, topic about women's issue, minority issues, you know, there are so many topics they cover with my paintings. Madeline, why was it important to the Marietta Cobb Museum to showcase works by Latinx artists? So I think we hit on that beautifully in the uh, introduction when Carlos was speaking about how strong the, the Latinx and Latin American, you know, however you like to say it, be. the demographics around here are a lot higher than I think we're seeing reflected in our arts. You know, that could be across the board, whether we're talking about visual arts or opera or ballet. I mean, this conversation could be held across the board. And at the MCMA, you know, we're in Marietta, so we're always trying to reflect our community in that city. And then we're in Cobb, we're trying to reflect that county. But then we're also, of course, trying to reach out to the rest of Georgia and beyond. And it becomes abundantly clear that it's not just about, you know, black, white. There is mm. so many more layers to identity, to culture, to just being an Atlantan in general that I felt like this exhibition, when Carlos brought it to my attention, would absolutely function to bring that awareness. But, you know, through art and not just through 
depicting a bunch of political art and trying to make like a really spicy statement and and being really shocking about it we were just trying to say hey here's just 20 artists of the countless incredible artists just within the east coast and here's a taste of everything that they're doing and yes some of it can be very conceptual and political but then some of it is just some of the most stunning portraiture you've ever seen and some of the most intricately done sculpture or metalworking. It's just a way to say, these artists, you know, as Carlos has said, these artists are here, we are here, we have something to say. So uh, really we just felt <laughs> the most we could do was just be a, a platform for that. So that's all I try to do as a curator is just try to keep my, my eyes and ears open always to the communities, the artists that reach out to me and, and need a platform and need a moment to have something to declare. And this one was perfect. And given my you know close relationship with Carlos over the past couple of years, it just felt so right for me and for the museum. And I hope it felt that way for, for Carlos too. Marietta Cobb Museum of Art curator Madeline Beck, joined by Carlos Solis, Atlanta artist and curator of Something to Declare. The exhibition is on view now through March 20th. More information appears on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, we'll get you ready for spring dining in Atlanta with a listen back to my conversation with Amanda Plum. Her book, Unique Eats and Eateries of Atlanta, highlights the people and stories behind the restaurants we love. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Local author Amanda Plum has loved playing restaurants since she was a child. Now, in her new book, Unique Eats and Eateries of Atlanta, Amanda is showcasing some of our city's most interesting dining spots. The stories include the restaurant's colorful histories, their well-known dishes, and even some secret menu suggestions. When it comes to stories, Amanda Plum is an expert. She originally came to Atlanta to head up StoryCorps Atlanta. We were colleagues for several years. When Amanda Plum joined me via Zoom last summer, she began with explaining why she wanted to write the book. Honestly, if someone asked me why I wrote this book today, I would say it was so I could get interviewed by Lois Francis <laughs> and be on the radio, which isn't quite true, but it feels that way right now, I promise. Thank you. It's a fun book. Unique Eats and Eateries of Atlanta is part of a series of books with similar titles that each focuses on a different U.S. city. Amanda, how did you get involved with the project and tap to write the Atlanta edition? Well, to tell you the truth, I got an email from someone at Reedy Press saying, we're looking for someone in Atlanta to write this book. Do you know someone or would you be willing to do it? And I remember when I got that email being like, this is too good to be true. It's probably some scam. What's going on? And I didn't even follow up right away. 
but eventually I scheduled a call and it turned out that my dear friend Jonah McDonald, who wrote Secret Atlanta and the Hidden Forests of Atlanta, he was working on a book for them and he had recommended me. And I think he recommended me for a couple of reasons. One, because of my storytelling background, you know, with StoryCorps and also I hosted a radio show called the North Avenue Lounge where I interviewed folks, but also I just have a passion for food and especially the Atlanta food scene. I had friends that we used to have a Buford Highway Supper Club where every month we would try a new restaurant on Buford Highway and we'd get together and we'd share a bunch of different dishes. We could try new foods. And several years ago, I started an underground restaurant with my friend Johanna and it's called Chow Club Atlanta. And each month there, we'd have a different home cook share dishes from their home country. So we have people from you know, Syria and Afghanistan, Nigeria, Philippines, all over the place. and really brought people together to try different food. So this book really brings together my love of food, my love of the Atlanta food scene, and my passion for helping people tell their stories. Indeed. And you love the international aspect of Atlanta, which comes through resoundingly in this book. I imagine Chow Club had to go on hiatus with COVID-19. Will you start that up again anytime soon? Yes, we are in conversations with venues and chefs now to get it going again. I think part of Chow Club is you're seated with someone that you don't know. And so there's a sense of community that comes from dining with strangers and learning about food together. And we really couldn't do that during COVID, but now we're definitely looking at starting up again. Hmm. It was touching to see the picture of dearly departed and legendary chef Rhea Pell. Her name and legacy live on with Rhea's Bluebird, Would you talk about your decision to include Rhea in this book? Yeah, I mean, so this book, it's interesting thing about what the book is not. So it's not just a review of restaurants. There's plenty of that on the internet right now. And it's not even a list of all my favorite places and stuff because there's way too many to be in this book. But I really wanted to highlight the people and the stories behind the restaurants that we love. And Rhea really just was this huge personality. I mean... She was this big butch lesbian who's always wearing like coveralls and she always had her hair high and tight done just right. And she was (laughs) tough. She used to be a bouncer um, at one point. And you kind of got that, like there's no substitutions allowed, which people have tattooed on their arm, like some of her old employees, but she would also, you know, do anything for people, raise money, give them things they needed. You know, she's always doing things for the community, especially Atlanta's queer community um, and groups like Atlanta Harm Reduction Coalition. And, you know, to me, she was just such a larger than life personality that even though she's gone, her legacy is still here. Her spirit lives on in Rhea's and I wanted to honor that. I think the only other person I did that really has passed recently would be Anne from Anne Snack Shop, who also had this big personality. She was known for her rules and really enforcing them. And so I still wanted to, you know, I still want people to go to those places and celebrate the memories of people like Rhea and Anne. Yeah, because they're just amazing parts of our culture and their food is still amazing. Yeah, I think it's wonderful that you do include those legacies. Pascal's restaurant holds pride of place in Atlanta history, in American history. Will you tell us about its origins and connection to the civil rights movement? Sure. I think everyone in Atlanta knows Pascal's, but I didn't really know anything about their history until I sat down with Mr. Slack, who was their historian, and he's been there since he was in his teens and was working there. So basically from the beginning. But Robert Pascal was a soda jerk at Jacob's Drugstore, which is right by all the HBCUs, and he would serve all the students from, you know, Morehouse and Spelman. And he knew that the food on campus wasn't great. And frankly, I don't think the food at the drugstore is that great. So he kind of wanted to open his own place, but he really didn't have the money to do that. But unbeknownst to him, his wife, Florine, had been saving his paychecks and she had the money for them to open up Pascal's. And so in 1947, they opened it up and people had heard about his famous fried chicken. And there was like a line out the door on day one, which would have been amazing, except for the fact that the stove broke. So they had no way of cooking (laughs) food. 
So what does he do? He picks up the phone and he calls Florine, who is at home, and she just starts cooking at home. And unfortunately, he had the car at the store, so she had to take a taxi with the food over to the restaurant on opening day. And they continued to do this for two weeks until they could raise enough money to get new equipment. So I love that story. Obviously, Florian just sounds like such a boss, but they, you know, they grew in 1959. They moved to a bigger space. They opened the La Carousel Lounge, which was a integrated music venue where Lena Horne, Curtis Mayfield, Gladys Knight, all the big ones came and performed. And in 1967, they opened a hotel because there's only two hotels in Atlanta that would serve African-Americans and none of them are right in that area. So they opened up a 120 room hotel and Martin Luther King had been dining at Pascal since he was a kid. And when the movement was starting, he went to them and asked if he could have some space for meetings and they gave him a suite to use um, during the civil rights movement. And also Pascal staff would go and bail out some of the HBCU students that got arrested and they'd bring them to the hotel, let them stay the night, give them some food and make them call their parents to let them know they were okay. So they were definitely a big part of the civil rights movement. It's a marvelous history. It's so rich. Many of the restaurants in this book have menus that are reasonably priced, some easily affordable. You have some downright bargains. You also include special occasion dining such as Bacchanalia. Why is the legacy of Chef Anne Quattrano and Clifford Harrison important to Atlanta? I think Anne is like our Alice Waters. You know, she really got her cooking chops in San Francisco. And at the time, San Francisco was kind of known for two things. They were where farm to table really started. And also a lot of the major chefs there, the most influential ones were women, people like Alice Waters and Judy Rogers and Joyce Goldstein. And so she moved to New York and worked in restaurants there, but she kind of um, sometimes got into some trouble with folks. In fact, she was fired from a job in 1992 for insubordination. And that's when she and her husband um, Clifford, who she'd worked really closely with, they moved to Atlanta and eventually opened Bacchanalia, which again, you mentioned, it's definitely a special occasion place. It's a prefix menu, it's amazing. But what they started doing early on was really sourcing local produce. And they were just champions of that. They really put their money where their mouth was and were willing to pay a premium for good local organic produce. They grow some on their farm um, and they use a lot of that. But really, they've been champions of groups like Georgia Organics and really help bring farm to table to Atlanta, which again, now I feel like feels ubiquitous. But at the time when they were here in the early 90s, that was pretty new. So I really think she's kind of the godmother of you know, organic, local food being in restaurants here. Indeed. She's also a lovely person. There's a humility about her, which may seem unusual to people who think, oh, higher-priced menu means a place is snooty. She's not. Not at all. And she also has several concepts that are much, you know, at a different price point. For example, WH Styles Fish Camp in Ponce City Market is pretty innovative fish camp because they have really interesting dishes where they're maybe combining uh, Korean spices with, you know, catfish. Um, but I love it because it is something that you can get every day, whereas Bacchanalia is maybe not an everyday restaurant. No, at least not for most people's budgets. One odd note in the book, Amanda, is about the silver skillet in Midtown. Do you know why their bathrooms are located in their kitchen? <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny because <laughs> you literally have to go outside of the restaurant, go in through another door into their kitchen to get to the bathroom. And the reason why it is like that is simply because the, the founder of the Silver Skillet, Tommy Haygood, he actually drew out what he wanted the space to look like. And for the most part, it's pretty cool. It has this really cool retro 50s diner kind of vibe. But one thing he really wanted was to save money by putting the bathrooms in the kitchen. I think that way they wouldn't have to look that nice. 
because, you know, they're not right there in the dining room. And his architect that he was working with really fought him on this, but, you know, he was the client, so he won. So to this day, you still have to go through the kitchen uh, to use the bathroom. I love the backstory of Bell Street Burritos. Would you talk about um, Matt Hinton's unusual path to being a restaurant owner? Sure. I love this one too, because I remember when it happened, I was actually an early adopter of Bell Street Burritos, which was then called Weston Burritos. So in 2008, Matt was an adjunct professor at Morehouse College. I believe he teaches religion. And when you're an adjunct, your classes only meet if you have a certain enrollment. So you have to kind of meet enrollment numbers. And that semester, one of his classes didn't. That meant that there were several thousand dollars that he was expecting to make that year that he wasn't going to make. So he had to think of a different way to make this income. Um, well, back in the 90s, he was a big fan of this place called Tortillas. Do you remember that, Lois? It was on Pont. I do. My family loved it. I love tortillas because it was really cheap, good burritos. I remember getting like the bean burrito and it was like two fifty, and you could get <laughs> potatoes and rice added for free, which I thought was like the best deal ever. Now as an adult, I realize those are really cheap ingredients in a way to, you know, actually save them some money, but it was just the coolest place. And Matt, like a lot of us was a big fan of tortillas. So when it closed in 2003, he was heartbroken, but on their last day, tortillas actually gave out their recipes. So in 2008, when Matt was trying to figure out how he's going to make some money, he actually pulled out those recipes and emailed friends and said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about making these burritos. Do you want to buy some for me? And he made 50 burritos the first day. And it actually ended up kind of being a disaster because he burned the beans that day. So he had to start from scratch. And he was going around his van delivering burritos. I think the last one got delivered around 10 p.m. And it was just a horrible day. And the last thing he wanted to do was do it again, but he did. He did it every week that semester and really built this following. Well, when the semester was over, he was so excited to go back to teaching because he just had enough of this burrito hustle. And fortunately for us, unfortunately for him, uh, his class didn't make, you know, enrollment in the next semester. And so he really had to figure out what he was going to do. And at that point, you know, he was getting in the media and just people were really loving his burritos. So he actually got a spot at Sweet Auburn Curb Market and opened up Bell Street Burrito. And the reason why it's called Bell Street Burritos, which I had never heard this before, is there's a little street behind Sweet Auburn Curb Market that leads to the employee parking lot. And that is called Bell Street. And that's why it's called Bell Street Burritos. It's such a 21st century success story. It really underscores the importance of social media to the success of some small businesses, small restaurants especially. Yeah, and you know, when he was doing it, it was I believe that was before Instagram and before there were just a ton of pop-ups. But several started by having their own following on social media, doing pop-ups. You know, you have Talat Market and Little Bear, which are both in Summerhill. They're two great places that just opened before or during the pandemic and really had to adapt to that. Emerald City Bagels, which is in my neighborhood, they started, you know, just selling them in um, Cabbage Town where they lived and built a big following that way. And now they have their first brick and mortar here in EAB. And if you ever go on the weekend, there's a huge line because everyone loves to get their bagels. Um, so it's really cool to see a lot of the folks that have started and kind of transitioned from doing pop-ups to having a brick and mortar space. It is. Amanda, the Atlanta barbecue scene is diverse and full of amazing restaurants, certainly enough to fill a book of its own. How did you narrow down which barbecue places to include in unique eats and eateries? Lois, I'm so glad you said that because I actually wrestled with this for a really long time because there are so many barbecue places and it could be its own book. And I really was like, how do I even choose where to begin? And I ended up only having two in the book, Erlen Barbecue Market and Sweet Auburn Barbecue. And they're both really interesting. I mean, one thing I love about Erlen Market Barbecue is one of the co-owners was a former K-pop star. Yeah. So she was the Britney Spears of Korea and moved to the US and ended up going to culinary school. And in the first restaurant she worked at, 
she met her now husband, Cody, who was, you know, a Southern boy who grew up going to meet and threes and barbecue joints. And they shared a passion for food. And on their dates, they would go to different barbecue spots and Korean restaurants, kind of sharing their cultures. And they learned there was a lot of commonality there in terms of ingredients or the types of ingredients. So they've created a Korean barbecue mashup. So not Korean barbecue, like when you think of going to Buford Highway for Korean barbecue, but it's Southern style barbecue with a lot of Korean influences. And they see it really as Atlanta style barbecue because it does kind of merge those cultures in a way that Atlanta does, that we are the city of transplants. And so we have that beautiful mix of cultures. And I think heirloom barbecue really shows that. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a winning combination. We have a friend who's often would ask what's not on the menu. And when we would go to a restaurant together and I always thought that was odd. <laughs> but you have some secret menu suggestions that you cover in the book. What are some of those? Yeah, that was one thing I asked everyone if they had any secret menu items. Um, one that I think is really neat is at Ticonderoga Club, every night before they close the kitchen, they make some bacon, egg, and cheese sandwiches, and they set those aside and you know, keep them warm. The reason why they do that is they want people in the industry, so people who work as servers and bartenders and cooks, to have a place to go late night and still get food, but even after the kitchens are closed. Um, and so that's not on the menu. That's something you can ask for. The Vortex has a secret menu that you can find on their website, and you have to think like a pirate. So there's a look for something pirate themed and click on it and you'll find their secret menu. We loved the Vortex, especially when our kids were little. That was a favorite destination in Little Five Points. And of course, walking through that skeleton doorway was part of the appeal. The hamburgers are pretty good. When my daughter comes back from New York, she's got to go there for the grilled cheese and is it the hash brown, the tater tots? Yeah, they definitely have tater tots. And they have this whole coronary bypass menu where <laughs> it's love burger, it. yes. but the buns are like grilled cheese sandwiches. And, you know, you might want to make sure that you have your life insurance, you know, up to date before you go try one of those. Um, but it's a pretty ambitious uh, eat if you want to try that one. Mm. Let's go back to Buford Highway, Amanda. Goose is sensational food. What makes it special? So I think what's interesting about Goo is before he ever opened his own restaurant, he was kind of like the fixer. He was a place when there were Chinese restaurants that really just didn't have, you know, success with their current staff. They just weren't doing good business. People would call him in and he would go and like, redo their menu and train the people that, you know, worked at the restaurant and really kind of fix them up. And so it's funny, he got a call from someone in 2010 who wasn't asking them to help fix his restaurant in Buford Highway, but asking him to take over it. And so he talked to his wife and they decided that, yeah, it was time for them to open their own restaurant. So he had a ton of experience um, before he even opened up his place. And he, when it opened, it was a really traditional Szechuan menu that had really exotic dishes like pork intestine and frog. And um, it, it was slow for people to pick up. I mean, it was always popular with some of the Chinese customers, but for American folks to really get excited, it took a little while, but when they got in Atlanta Magazine, it was over. People love that place, especially um, their dumplings, which is why now they actually have goose dumplings that you can find in Crog Street Market and up in Alpharetta because that was one of their most popular dishes. Like their daughter, when she was like clearing plates, people would like threaten her if she tried to take the plate from them if they hadn't like sopped up the, every last bit of the sauce. You know, it's that good. I think every meal should end with chocolate, Amanda. Actually, I don't even think it needs to be a part of the meal. I think chocolate is maybe the most important of the daily food groups. I love that you included chocolate. You know, I think I had spotted them. Of course, I was lured by the fabulous aroma when I was in Crog Street Market. And I saw the price tag on 
at that time, $9 for a candy bar? I don't think so. And then when I heard about the lengths they go to to make sure that the farmers are well paid, that the whole creative process has integrity and cheats no one, not to mention the taste of it, I got it. And it's worth a splurge. Definitely. It makes a great gift. I've definitely given some of their bars just as a little present. When we think about coffee and wine, there are two types of food where it really matters where they're grown. You know, you can really taste it in the soil, you know, the soil in the finished product. You know, we talk about single origin coffee, meaning it comes from one place, from one farm. And chocolate's the same way. Like depending on where the beans are grown, they have a really different flavor. And so they're really focused on this single origin, small batch chocolate, where you can really get a sense of the quality of the raw produce. Um, and so it really is kind of artisan. It's, it's next level, right? It's a specialty chocolate. It's not your everyday thing you want to cook with, but it is something if you just want to savor just one piece of chocolate. They have one called the Soul Rebel, which has a Jamaican jerk spice blend, which has things like thyme and scorpion pepper and coconut milk in it, which I love. They also have one that is 100% pure, meaning no sugar. It's just Nicaraguan cacao. And it is super bitter. <laughs> I tried it once and I have to say, not my jam, but I do think it's something you should try because you really get to see what it's like. Because when we have chocolate, there's always sugar to some extent mixed in. So it's definitely really eye-opening to try it um, without any sugar. Is there a restaurant where you haven't dined because of COVID that's first on your list to return to? Well, so many places are opening up. They've been doing takeout, but are just opening up. So two of them that opened during the pandemic right before are Little Bear and Talat Market. And so I got takeout from both of those, but I'm really excited to go visit them and see their spaces and dine in them for the first time. I'm also really excited um, to be going up to spring and up in Marietta. That is just this really great special occasion place. I'm actually taking my parents there when they come to visit for the first time. Amanda Plum, this has been delightful. I really hope and expect there's going to be a resurgence in Atlanta's culinary scene. And I hope this inspires people to get out there and try a new place or revisit an old favorite. Atlanta author Amanda Plum. More information about her book, Unique Eats and Eateries of Atlanta, is available on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, the next installment in our series, Speaking of the Arts, today featuring mixed-media artist Jeremy Ray. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Jeremy Ray, and I am a mixed media artist from right here in Atlanta, Georgia. I make paintings and murals and drawings and illustrations. I do some design work, and I also am a printmaker. I started drawing at a very young age, and my parents did nurture that by putting me in drawing classes as early as elementary school. And I went on to do a lot of artwork for my bands and my friends' bands throughout high school and college at Winthrop University in Rock Hill, South Carolina, which is where I graduated with a BFA in printmaking and design back in 2006. I think motivation and inspiration can come from a different place every day. Those things aren't limited. I think it comes when it comes. I don't think that's something that you can force. Most of the time for me, it just comes from my surroundings, my family, my friends, also music and words really inspire me. So I moved to Atlanta in the summer of 2007, thinking that I would only stay here for a couple of years. 
I needed a change of pace after I got out of college. It's kind of a small town atmosphere and I just needed something bigger, something with more energy, but I wanted to stay in the Southeast. I wanted to stay close to family and Atlanta was the natural choice and I've been here for 15 years. So not only has Atlanta influenced my art, it's influenced my entire existence. I love this city and this is where I call my home. If I want to see new art, I just get in my car and I drive with my eyes open. You know, it's new art happening everywhere every day around this city. Uh, it's blooming with new artists and new artwork and it's everywhere. Honestly, I think that's one of the reasons why I've stayed in this city for so long is because of its ever-changing, ever-growing population of artwork. My perception of what I see as art might be completely different from what everybody else sees, but that's the beauty in artwork and that's the beauty of living in Atlanta because it's diverse and it's absolutely everywhere. You can follow me on the Instagram platform. My handle is Jeremy Ray Is. I'm active on social media, sharing new work uh, nearly every day. Mixed media artist Jeremy Ray and our series, Speaking of the Arts. More information about Ray's work is available on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Matt Paxton of Legacy List on PBS shares why we should keep the memories but lose the stuff. Plus, Atlanta photographer Brandon May shares his passion for capturing the beauty of our city's architecture. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.